Welcome, Wisconsin. My name is Brett Healy, president of the MacGyver Institute, and you're joining us here today on the MacGyver Newsmakers podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are joined uh, for a discussion on all things education with State Representative Jeremy Thiensfeld, chair of the Assembly Education Committee. Good morning, Representative Thiensfeld. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Uh, would you take a quick second and just introduce yourselves to our listeners, give us uh, uh, some idea of your background? As you said, I'm Representative Jeremy Thiesfeld, and I represent the 52nd District, which is primarily the city of Fond du Lac at the southern edge of Lake Winnebago. I have represented the 52nd District since January 2011, so I'm in my fifth term. I'm in my third term as chairman of the Assembly Education Committee, uh, which is a position that fits with my background. I, prior to being in the legislature, I had spent almost 22 years in the classroom. Uh, I taught elementary level and high school level in Lutheran schools in both Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, did some administrative duties, also spent a year as being a principal a couple of years ago, filling in at my my congregation's K-8 uh, Lutheran school uh, when they were short for a year. Uh, so I enjoy working with education and hoping that we can solve some of these problems that we have going on in Wisconsin. Well, let's dive right in. Let's uh, let's address some of those problems. Uh, a lot to get to here this morning. Um, a few weeks back, the DPI released the latest data set on student achievement, and that data set showed that 40% of Wisconsin students are proficient in reading, or I should say in math, and 50, uh, for, roughly 40% are proficient in English language arts. Your reaction to those numbers? Well, those numbers are poor. Uh, they've been going down. And we have four years of data now on the same test, essentially, uh, focusing on particularly reading in third grade, uh, which is kind of the, the point where things kind of shift. You know, up till third grade, students are learning to read, and then after third grade, they are reading to learn. And uh, we have not seen progress in the state of Wisconsin, and we have seen other states zooming past us, uh, in particular reading, but other other categories such as mathematics are troublesome as well. But I, I believe that reading is the root of the problem, and if we are able to solve the problem in reading scores in the state of Wisconsin, I think largely a lot of these other areas are going to take care of themselves. Uh, and you... you you hit upon uh, uh, the most troubling aspect, I think, of the of, of the numbers of the data set was the trend, and the fact that we're not seeing an upward trend in these numbers, but actually we're seeing a, uh, a stagnation or even uh, uh, some of these numbers going down. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, you, as you point out, you've been chair of the education committee now for your this is your third term. What's going on here? Why are we seeing this downward trend in the proficiency numbers? Well, you, you know, some some experts might like to say that there's a certain level where you, you maybe can't get any higher. 
Well, we certainly aren't at that because there are plenty of other states that are quite similar to our state, particularly Minnesota, uh, who is doing much better uh, in terms of these education scores. Um, but beyond that, as you said, the most disturbing trend is, is that we seem to be going downward. Uh, and I think what you have to do then is, you know, kids are kids are kids. Kids are any different today than they were 100,000 years ago. They, they have, uh, they still learn the same way. It's how we're teaching them. And also the, the things that they go through in their life, which kind of gets in the way of an appropriate education, those are the things that we need to examine, those variables. Now, some of that, you know, we can't go into the houses uh, and make the lives of children better. So examining what are the things that we truly can control, uh, how we teach the kids, making sure that we have good teachers in the classroom, those are the sorts of things that we need to be devoting our energies toward. And clearly, what it is that we're doing right now is not showing up in these results of these tests. Now, we shouldn't assume that just because the test results aren't good, that nothing good is going on in our schools. Now, certainly there are good teachers there, but oftentimes they are handcuffed by administration uh, that is requiring them to teach with poor methodology. Uh, the student, another area that I think is problematic are our universities. Uh, who fiercely defend their uh, academic freedom in being able to train students certain ways uh, in order to be able to teach students effectively. And the methods that are being used, I think, are not particularly strong, and that's showing. Uh, so I think we need to take a, picture, take a look at that overall picture uh, and go with some results. I mean, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We, we pretty well know what works. It's a matter of having the will to be able to implement the changes that are going to be necessary to make Wisconsin's uh, test scores uh, start trending upward again. Because uh, we, we belong to a state that has historically been admired across the country for our academic prowess. And I would contend that right now, while we still are ahead of some other states, uh, we have kind of fallen to the middle of the pack or even lower in terms of the other states. Uh, and some of that prowess is starting to be eroded, um, and with good reason, because it's just kind of window dressing at this point. You talk about um, that this... We, we, we know what works, and it's worked for a long time, yet we're seeing these disappointing results. Um, do you think uh, the people over at Department of Public Instruction, DPI, do you think they know what works and they're willing to do what needs to be done in order to make sure that at the ground level in the classroom we're using methods that work? Well, it's funny you said that because just yesterday uh, I spent some time with some individuals over at Department of Public Construction. I set up some meeting times, met with some key individuals, including Carolyn Stanford-Taylor, uh, who is our our new state superintendent. 
and I would have to say that I was very impressed with the dedication that I saw and the recognition of the problem that exists. You know, we didn't have much disagreement in that. Uh, and based on what conversations I had, we seemed to be in line with what needs to be done. Now the question is, is how do you get it accomplished? Uh, one of the things that, you know, in one way it's a good thing and another way it's a bad thing is, is that our school districts have an awful lot of freedom. Um, the state does not dictate standards to them. Uh, you know, they certainly can influence the process, such as through the particular state tests that is chosen that all the schools have to use. Uh, school boards have a lot of freedom to do what they want within their district. No, that, I, that's a positive thing. You know, locally, you should be able to make those decisions as to what's best for your local students. But when you have uh, statewide problems uh, that are very clear and evident, you have to have some level of authority to be able to make some mandates and change across these districts. And the, and the department is reluctant to do that with good reason. Uh, and so that's a challenge that they face in being able to fix this problem. Because I, in talking with them, it was pretty clear they understand what the problem is. And um, in particular in reading, uh, I think the recognition is, is that, as I said, up till third grade we are, or through third grade, we are teaching them how to read. And I believe that some of the trends in education that have been going on for really the last 40 years have been problematic for teaching kids how to read, and we've seen the impact of that not just in Wisconsin but nationwide. And so you're saying that uh, the staff over at the Department of Public Instruction agrees with you that some of these um, trends in education might not be the best way to actually accomplish our goal, which is to teach reading? DPI agrees with you? Um, based on my conversation I had with them, uh, actually it wasn't yesterday, it was two days ago, that was the impression I got. Uh, there was little disagreement on that, and they seemed to be dedicated towards making these changes um, and seemed to be a willing partner because that certainly is the direction I'm going, is that we, we need to make sure that our teachers are using appropriate methods that have been scientifically proven to teach kids how to read uh, and not what is the flavor of the month uh, in the ivory towers at our educational colleges. Um, you know, that, that's the thing with academic freedom is you're always looking for ways to do something better. Which, I mean, that's great. Uh, but when those methods are not scientifically proven to succeed, we've we got we to gotta stop doing that and go back to what we know works. Uh, and uh, getting down to some of the detail of this, we have strayed away from phonics instruction, uh, which is you know how you and I learned to read, and was very successful for many years in in Wisconsin and statewide, uh, Wisconsin and nationwide. And because we've strayed away from that and gone too much into what was the whole, what's called the whole language approach, or sometimes you hear this approach called the, the cueing method of reading. We have a whole generation of students who have been educated in scientifically 
failed and unproven methods of reading instruction. Uh, and that generation of students are now teachers, and in some cases, the college professors who are teaching our ne next generation of teachers how to do methods that are proven to not work. Uh, and so it kind of almost becomes this intimidating thing for our, our teachers around the state and around the country in that they're, the method that we know is going to be successful uh, is something that they never learned to read using that method. And when they went to college, they weren't taught to teach other people that method. And so our, I think our biggest challenge here in Wisconsin is going to be how do we get this uh, current group of teachers that we have in the state uh, to embrace the historical method of teaching reading that we know works. Uh, and if we can accomplish that, I, I think it is, I think we're going to be headed in the right direction. We will, examples from other states show that you will have nearly immediate positive results if you are able to do it. And did you, do you anticipate legislation to address that problem, trying to get uh, teachers in the classroom back to the tr tried and true methods of uh, teaching of, of reading? Is, is legislation necessary? Or is it something that the department can work with you on to make it clear to all the schools, all the teachers out there, that this is the preferred way to teach reading? There will be probably need to be some legislation. Uh, you know, I, I've been saying that uh, in the media that uh, teaching this old style, which isn't really old, it's, it's effective. Sometimes the old stuff is the best. Uh, this doesn't cost anymore. Uh, but the problem is, is the transition to going back to it is probably going to require a significant amount of teacher training. And so uh, it, it's going to probably require some legislation to encourage or mandate this sort of training, and it's also going to have to be paid for. Uh, and I don't think we can necessarily count on school districts uh, to, on an immediate basis, be able to go through that level of training with all of the teaching staff. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be all of it. It would just be the ones primarily focused on teaching reading in the younger years. Uh, but even beyond that, the materials that perhaps some of these schools are using, you know, schools are on a rotational basis for their curriculum materials, you know, every six, seven, eight, nine years, whatever their rotation is, and they reevaluate and they purchase updated materials. Uh, and so if a school has just recently purchased things and they determine that, well, you know, this stuff isn't really going to work with the direction we need to go, it's possible they're going to need some assistance with that as well, because we don't want the uh, we don't want the improvements to be lagged behind because a school was unable to purchase uh, new curricular materials because they had to wait four or five years till the reading textbooks a turn in the rotation came up. Uh, so I, I think that's going to be part of it. Um, in my discussions at DPI, you know, they already had some ideas in place of uh, things that they were trying to get accomplished. Uh, but once again, it, it's a matter of taking these things to what are fiercely independent school boards 
and convincing them that this is what they need to do. Uh, and I am I am ready to step up to the plate for that challenge uh, because do- it's that important. Uh, we need to make sure that our next generation of students in Wisconsin is prepared to enter into the workforce. Um, but even beyond that, people lose track of the fact that our schools are not just to prepare people for the workforce. Our schools are to prepare people for life in America. Um, and that involves a whole lot more than just kind of fitting, fitting into slots in the workforce. Uh, I, I like to always say that we're, we're passing the keys of freedom to the next generation. And when you hear, hear about all these young people who think that socialism is such a great idea, clearly that is a problem in our schools right now, that our students are being taught things that are averse to the history of our nation. Do you think DPI Superintendent Carolyn Stanford-Taylor is up to the challenge, is is willing to roll up her sleeves and join you in uh, making it clear to local school boards this is needed. Uh, one of the criticisms that we had of her recently uh, was that after the data came out that only 40% of our students are proficient in math and English language arts, uh, six in 10 are not proficient. After that data came out, she gave her first state of the education speech at the Capitol, and she did not use those words anywhere in her speech. She was quick to use equity and talk about um, uh, shortcomings in in equity and education, but she didn't discuss or take head on the idea that only 40% of our students are proficient. Uh, Do you think she's up to the challenge of using the bully pulpit to convince local school boards, local classrooms, local teachers that this is the way we need to teach reading? When I heard uh, the speech that Superintendent Taylor gave, I, I was extremely disappointed too. And I, frankly, I think the media as a whole was disappointed because those scores had just come out, I think, within the previous week of that address. And it's an annual address. And it always seems to kind of coincide with the release of those scores. Uh, and she didn't say anything about it. Um, you know, I, I, I want to give the benefit of the doubt in the fact that she was at the time still fairly new to the position. Um, and being that she's kind of a, a groundbreaking person, she's the first African American woman to first African American period an African-American woman to hold this position in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, she's apparently in high demand around the country for speaking engagements, and they want to fulfill those duties. Uh, she had been at DPI, but had kind of been siloed in a different department, and so was trying to catch up with all the different activities that are involved with her new job. Um, so I want to give her the benefit of the doubt on that. Um, in my meeting with her two days ago, uh, she seemed very up on the fact that this is a problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, the thing is, is we're, what's getting all kinds of attention is the achievement gap. And 100% I agree that that is a big problem. And the results of the NAEP scores, which is basically the nation's report card, a national test that came out yesterday, 
simply reiterated the problem that our own state tests said, and that we have this huge achievement gap, particularly with, which means the difference between uh, whites who take the test and African Americans who take the test, or whites who take the test and Hispanics who take the test, or you know, fill in any other minority group that's out there. In Wisconsin, for African Americans, we have the largest achievement gap between black and white in the country. And it's been this way for quite some time, not getting any better, in fact, probably getting a little worse. Uh, and so I, she has a full grasp of that problem. Uh, what possibly might be at issue yet is what to do about it. Uh, there, there seems, and, and this is not Carolyn Stanford Taylor who said this to me, but there, there are legislators in the building in Madison uh, who are f focused on this problem and seem to think that the solution is to kind of soften the standards. Um, you know, one, I can remember a number of years back, uh, George W. Bush indicating that uh, he used the phrase, the soft bigotry of low expectations, uh, if you remember that. And that, that still persists. To this day, and you know, it's kind of like you know, these these minority students. We can't expect as much out of them. That is absolutely false. Uh, there, there is no reason to think that minority students can't do as well uh, as what other students do. And we do a disservice to them by just simply lowering standards and saying that that's good enough. Uh, and there's evidence of this around the country, and you can look specifically at the NAP scores that came out uh, from states such as, I'm going to point to in particular, Mississippi. Uh, I was just studying this this morning. I was checking out the child poverty rates. Um, Mississippi, and granted, these are 2017 numbers, but I'm sure they're probably not much different today. The Mississippi and 2017 had 26.9% of its children living in poverty. Uh, Wisconsin is almost half that, 14.5%. So 26.9 to 14.5% of children living in poverty. Uh, and now when you check the minority percentage of population in those two states, Mississippi uh, is almost 43% minority population, Wisconsin, almost 18%. So one would think that based on that, that idea that, you know, if you're poor, if you're minority, you can't do as well, uh, Mississippi is proving that wrong uh, because they made serious changes in their, uh, in their teaching methodology, particularly in reading back in 2013. And it took a couple of years to fully take hold, but they are on the verge of passing Wisconsin in academic performance on these latest NAEP scores. And, and you know, Mississippi, this is a state where on the floor of the state legislature for years, ever since I've been in there in 2011, for years, Mississippi has been derided, particularly by my friends across the aisle, uh, as kind of the shining example of poor academic performance. Well, guess what? They're just about ready to zoom right past Wisconsin because they were willing to take on this problem and 
and they aren't looking at their minority or poverty students as being less capable. Um, they're looking at them as being just as capable, having high expectations for them, and that's exactly the sort of thing and the sort of way we need to handle this in Wisconsin. Derided, but on pace to actually pass Wisconsin. That's fascinating. Uh, you mentioned, and I just want to clarify this point, that in discussions that you've heard or been a part of at the Capitol, some legislators, in response to the poor student achievement data, the worst-in-the-nation achievement gap, instead of coming up with proactive approaches or ideas to how to make this better, they want to lower the standards to make this problem go away? Well, and I, and I don't know if that's maybe I'm not phrasing it off the top of my head completely accurately. Um, I'll just give you an example of that. Uh, there is a test that is taken by lower grade teachers, the ones who teach the reading, particularly reading specialists. Uh, it's called the Foundations of Reading Test. It was pioneered in the state of Massachusetts, and it has been considered for a number of years kind of the gold standard of if you pass this test, that you are considered ready to teach reading to youngsters. Uh, and Wisconsin uh, has required our, uh, I don't know if it's all students in different colleges of education or if it's just the UW system. Uh, but I know the UW system, they are required to take this test and pass it. And those data results are then turned over to the Department of Public Instruction. And the Department of Public Instruction is supposed to reveal those numbers that pass-fail rate each year. Well, the department, particularly in the Tony Evers years, was always kind of playing games with revealing that number. Uh, don't really understand why, uh, but they weren't really straightforward and open about revealing that. I'm hoping that's something that's going to change under the new superintendent. Uh, but this Foundations of Reading test uh, is a challenging test, no doubt, but if you want to get your teaching license in lower grade uh, or lower grades or reading specialists, you have to pass this test as a strong indication that you're ready to teach reading. Well, uh, there's a bill out there right now that I am resisting in the education committee that wants to set a lower passing, what you would call a cut score, set a lower cut score uh, for people who want to be teachers in essentially MPS, that they don't have to get as high a score as other teachers around the state. Now, you know, the reason given is, is that they can't come up with enough teachers, so therefore we need to lower the standards. I, I get that, uh, but if we really want to solve the problem, are we really going to do it by lowering teacher quality? Uh, that isn't going to fix it. We need to have better teaching. and. Once again, that's just kind of saying that, you know, we, we, need, to, we need to drop expectations uh, in order to get our minority students or our students living in poverty to do better. And I, I, I completely reject that. You know, I've had, in my classrooms over the years, I've had minority kids. I've had kids who I knew were poor, and they didn't do any differently than students 
who were not minority or students who were wealthy. Uh, it, it's, it's a matter of good parenting and good teaching. Uh, and if we can get that accomplished, uh, we're going to go a long way towards solving this problem. Given the fact that MPS's um, English language art score, proficiency score, the reading proficiency score is 18.6% this year, down from last year, uh, I mean, I think most listeners, most taxpayers would find that shocking that less than one in five, less than 20% of MPS kids are proficient in reading. Uh, the idea that the answer to that problem, the, the answer to that crisis is to lower the, the teaching standards, I think most listeners would, would say that's not the right approach. Yeah, and particularly in the areas where you have the biggest struggle. And so we, we need our best teachers in our areas where we are doing the poorest. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that when we get a really good teacher uh, that is in MPS or some other uh, district that is struggling, that teacher has good, strong impact. But sometimes it seems that those good teachers' goal is to get to another district. Uh, and, you know, that brings up a whole other issue of why these teachers want to go to different districts and I believe that some of that is because of the the disciplinary policies uh, that have been enacted in some of our urban areas where we are reluctant to discipline kids uh, because of fears of well, it's not just a fear there, there have been threats that have come from the federal government during the Barack Obama years uh, that we have what are called disparate, disparate uh, policies or disparate impact of discipline in our schools, uh, and so you know, no, no, no district wants to go through something like that, and so then they just stop disciplining kids, and their expulsion rate drops, um, students being removed from classrooms for varying reasons drops, uh, and that creates a problem, and that teachers feel they aren't being supported uh, in their efforts and so then they decide well you know I'm just going to go someplace else and that's a that's a tragedy in Milwaukee we need to have the good teachers where they're most needed uh, and we need to support those teachers with policies particularly disciplinary policies that allow them to effectively discipline those students because when students aren't disciplined it's not just those students being disciplined that don't learn. Uh, there are all kinds of other students who suffer because of that, of that as well. Uh, let's jump back to uh, something that you brought up briefly, and that's the National Assessment of Educational Progress report, the NAEP. Uh, you referred to it as the nation's report card. That was released yesterday. shows that Wisconsin has the biggest achievement gap in the country. Uh, we have been consistently right there with the city of Washington, D.C. Uh, for this honor. Um, and we, we've, we've been on this list for some time. This has been a focus of DPI. This has been a focus of education policy here in Wisconsin. How do we close the achievement gap? And we've, we've come up with new ideas. We've come up with new monies. And yet here we are today, once again, leading the nation in the worst achievement gap. Uh, 
What does that say about our past efforts to close the achievement gap? Uh, are we throwing money at uh, strategies that uh, clearly don't work? Why are, why are we not making progress on this problem? Uh, well, it, it clearly is an indication that what we've been doing has not been succeeding. Um, let, let me tell you a, a little bit of a story story here uh, in regard to the achievement gap. Uh, you may recall we had a program in Wisconsin called the SAGE program, uh, which was an acronym, hopefully I'll remember this right, the Student Achievement Guarantee in Education. Essentially what it was, was if you had a school that... Uh, was struggling a low poverty school that you could get additional money if you uh, went along with having smaller class sizes uh, that you would say that if you would have 18 no more than 18 students for one teacher or no more than 30 students for two teachers in a classroom uh, and that was done for oh, I don't know how many years many years a few years back uh, there was a legislative council study committee put together where we decided we were going to examine the SAGE program and see if there were some improvements that we could make to it. Uh, and we did do that, and we changed the name of the program from SAGE to AGR, which stood for Achievement Gap Reduction. So this is exactly what this is aimed at. Uh, the most recent budget that we passed uh, so the budget we are in right now set aside something like $110 million for this particular program. Uh, and it, it is largely focused in schools in our urban areas. Uh, and this kind of gets also to the, uh, what I said before, is that we, uh, there, there are pieces of legislation currently that are looking to soften what have been successful interventions. So you know, back to the committee, the, the committee put some flexibility into the program that you didn't just have to deal with class size. You could still do that, but it allowed there to be schools to have the flexibility to have one-on-one -on -one tutoring or to have uh, what is sometimes called coaches for teachers where you would have kind of what I said was saying before, that we need our teachers to know how to teach effectively. And so it allows schools to have that flexibility to do that as well, or some combination of those three. Uh, and because the SAGE were contracts, it took a couple years for the SAGE contracts to expire. And we now finally have one full year of data on the new program uh, where it has some flexibility. And the program did show some positive results. It wasn't big. Okay. One year of data, and there was, an, there was a movement upward in the analysis that was done of the program. And so what did I get a few weeks ago? I, I got a bill come across my desk looking for a hearing in the Assembly Education Committee wanting to take the program back to the way it was, where it was just simply class size. Uh, and so, you know, that's the kind of thing that we're constantly fighting is, and unfortunately, it was, it had Republican authors. Can you speak uh, real so quickly to what's the rationale behind uh, a piece of legislation like that, going back to SAGE, going back to something that well, I, had mixed results at best? What is there, is there 
uh, an idea behind that a, that you? A, yeah, I, I think it's a misconception on the value of class size. You know, you go on the website of any school out there, public, private, college, doesn't matter. They will brag about their student to teacher ratio uh, as though that's really just, just a great thing. Now, obviously, you know, if you have a smaller class size, you're going to be able to give more individual attention. But if you don't have a good teacher, I don't care how much individual attention you give to a student, they're not going to do well, uh, particularly if they're a student that isn't getting much attention on the home front. And so this, this idea that class size is some sort of magic potion uh, to make education better is just absolutely not true. And studies have shown this. I, I, would, I would by far want to have 30, 35 students in one room with a really good teacher than I would to want to um, break that class into two and have two mediocre teachers in charge of each classroom. Uh, yeah, it's more work for the teachers, um, but I think ultimately, uh, if you're willing to pay that teacher to be effective, um, if you are willing to, oh, I should say, if you're, if you're willing to allow that teacher to truly teach and be effective as they can be, if you're willing to compensate that teacher as they deserve to be for the quality of education that they're providing, uh, that class size, you know, obviously you can't have 100 kids in a classroom, but class size really doesn't make a big difference. And so we were, we were trying to give schools who recognize that some flexibility. And now here we get a bill, which after one year of positive data, looks to turn that around. Uh, so, you know, those are some of the struggles that we have in, in fighting against the, the progress, even if it's just tiny progress that we've made. Uh, and, and I can't help but think that some of it is, is that, yeah, that there is just this belief that if we stick with SAGE, uh, it's going to mean more teachers, and therefore more teachers means that we have more teachers in the union. Um, and if that's really what it's coming down to, that's a shame, um, because the, the kids should not be subject to just simply wanting to have more bodies in the classroom in front of the kids so we can have more members in the union. It sounds like from our discussion that going forward, the focus of your work um, is going to be on the quality of teaching and the teaching profession. Is that is that safe to say going forward? That's that's where you're looking to focus your energies. Right. I, I think that's an accurate statement. Uh, just based on my studies of what other states have done that have been successful, um, looking for primarily at Mississippi because it's happening right now there. Uh, Arkansas is going through some of this as well. Florida, you know, Florida used to be trail states like, well behind many states, including Wisconsin, and they have now zoomed past Wisconsin and rank among some of the best in the country. And once again, Florida is another state where they have a fairly high percentage of poverty in comparison to Wisconsin, and they have a much higher uh, minority population compared to Wisconsin. But yet it hasn't mattered. Uh, they focused on teachers, they focused on methods, uh, they, they opened up to school choice, and the families embraced it, and the scores have moved up because of it. Uh, and so those are models that we need to look at. Uh, and instead of saying, thinking that, you know, kind of banking on this historical 
viewpoint that Wisconsin is so strong in education and that we know better than everybody else. Uh, you know, one, one of the advantages of having 50 different education systems is we have 50 different systems we can look at as a model and say, hey, you know, I think this state is doing it right. Let's start moving this direction. And instead, we seem to be stuck in the mud, so to say, um, sticking with things that we know are not successful, uh, worrying about lawsuits from the federal government, um, not demanding much of our students, uh, and not putting our dollars into areas that would be effective. Um, and that would be making sure that our teachers are prepared to teach kids that are going to be placed in front of them. Can you give our listeners some sense of the next step? Uh, here we sit in um, late October, early November. Um, not many days are scheduled for legislative floor action this year or next year. Are you anticipating holding hearings on all of this, on actually drafting legislation to address some of these problems? What do you think legislatively you'll be doing next? Yeah, at this point, it may be difficult to get something passed uh, unless there is, by and large, unity in purpose, particularly between the Senate and the Assembly. Uh, and then once again, we have Tony Evers as governor, um, and I suspect he's probably not going to be willing to sign something into law that is going to reflect poorly on his years as superintendent of public instruction. I, I, I would truly hope that is not the case. Um, you know, that, I have no intention of uh, looking backwards and pointing the finger at him. I, I just want to get it fixed, and I'd like it to be bipartisan, and I would like the department to be at my side as we move forward at this at this juncture. Uh, so it's going to be tough to get something done this session, but I, I wouldn't put it past uh, possibly having a couple pieces of legislation introduced uh, just to kind of get the conversation rolling for next session. But I, I think that most of the work is going to get pushed into the uh, the 20, excuse me, the 20, let's see, that would be the 21-22 legislative session. Um, which, you know, I'm not excited about having to wait, but uh, the reality is the calendar start staring you in the face. Uh, and you don't want to rush through something. I want to get it right. And so hopefully we can start pushing some ideas out, um, advertise those to the public, get people behind us. I think the public, by and large, recognizes that there's a problem. Uh, nobody wants their schools to do poorly. Uh, this is a, an issue that is a popular one in the state as evidenced yesterday by the amount of media coverage there was of the NAEP scores and so I, I think there's a lot to gain for the state of Wisconsin uh, by taking this issue up and moving it as quickly as we possibly can. And yet um, when the initial scores came out the 40 percent proficients we didn't see a whole lot of reaction quite frankly uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on the MacGyver Newsmakers podcast was the, the mere fact that uh, other than Speaker Voss, you were the only politician, only state representative to speak out on those uh, those dismal results. Uh, and now yeah, here and now that, that was... now here we're we're hearing you're you're telling us that perhaps it, it's going to take a little while before 
a consensus could could come forward to push legislation. Do you think there's a recognition in the state that we have a problem in education, or or do you think most people are uh, unaware of of some of these these bad results? Well, there's an interesting disconnect there, and I, I shared this with uh, Superintendent uh, Taylor when I met with her also, in that I think people see the statewide results and they kind of shake their head and say, oh, that's bad. Uh, and then you get the media that jumps in and, and they, they get over, they, they get all over me, PolitiFact and so forth, because I didn't use the precisely appropriate language that suited their preferences. Uh, when I made my statement, and in the process of doing that, all all they do is just kind of uh, soften the the message out there that oh, it's not really as bad as what he says it is. Just so our listeners are aware, you're referring to uh, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel put a fact section rated your comments uh, that the vast majority of our kids are not proficient as false. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that they were nitpicking yeah. on the the phrase vast majority. I guess you could make a case that 60% being non-proficient is not a vast majority. I would argue uh, that uh, uh, it is uh, a problem and it is a crisis, but they took that and gave you a false rating. Go ahead. Yeah, and they they didn't like the fact I said grade level also. Um, And so that that took it even further. As far as the term vast goes, they never even asked me about that word. Uh, you know, if a, if a politician wins a race by a 60% margin, that's a landslide. Uh, I think that could qualify as vast, and that's just an opinion on their part. I don't think that they can really be declaring opinions to be false. Uh, but focusing on the grade level proficient, as long as I've been teaching, has been a word that has pretty well been used with grade level. Um, and that, if that wasn't precise enough for them, you know, I, I think that they need to develop some flexibility in their analysis and realize that the main point I was trying to get across is that we do not have acceptable rates in the state of Wisconsin for learning. And uh, the media needs to step up to the plate and make sure that people of the public recognize this. Because as I said, I, I shared this with the superintendent that uh, on a wide scale, people look at the state results and they think, oh, yeah, that's bad. But I think if you ask most people if they're satisfied with their local school districts, they'll say, yes, they are. And, you know, I, I, I compare it sometimes to Congress, where you'll get universal uh, dislike of Congress. But then when you ask people in their community about their own Congress, member of Congress, they say, oh, yeah, but he or she, we, we like him a lot. Well, how can that be this disconnect? You you have the, the body itself is doing poorly, but the one person who's closest to you is doing well. And I think that applies to schools as well. So we need as a, as a state to recognize that our local school districts, as much as we don't want to be critical of their performance, uh, they are they are in some ways part of the larger problem. And they need to share in some of the culpability for this problem. And they also need to share in um, adopting the methods and strategies to solve the problem. And that that is also, I think, part of the problem with legislators is you know, we, we all want to have good relationships 
with our superintendents and our school board members because unlike other committees, every legislator has schools. You know, not every legislator has factories and not of all of them have farms, but we all have schools. We want to have a positive relationship with those people that run those schools. And so there is a tendency oftentimes to shy away from criticism where that criticism is especially valid. And I think that's some of the reason for the silence that we heard when those scores came out. Um, but I can assure you that behind the scenes there's plenty of dismay and that dismay needs to be shared with the public by uh, the rest of my colleagues in the legislature, too, because we, we're only hurting our kids by keeping silent about it. Clearly, there's enough blame to go around. Kids need to do better. Parents, teachers, administrators, uh, the education as a whole. Uh, but we can't just pretend that we don't have problems or refuse to directly talk about those problems if we're ever going to hope to actually get better to address those problems and to have the best schools in the nation uh, and I think you're absolutely right that the media plays a, a critical role here um, and all you have to point to is the fact that we really haven't heard from Governor Evers about all of this latest data even though he was state superintendent of schools for eight plus years even though that he's governor in front of a mic uh, every day of the week uh, it seems like uh, some in the media would prefer not to make uh, this a big deal would prefer that we not have this conversation uh, talk to us a little more a bit about how important it is that we as wisconsinites as taxpayers as parents uh, actually have this conversation and refuse to just let this slip away? Well, I, one of the things that I think if you compare today to go back 35, 40, 50 years is the attendance at school board meetings or even, you know, your village board meetings, your town boards, your city council meetings. There, if you ever go to some of these, I encourage everybody to do that on occasion. Uh, there's hardly anybody at these meetings. You know, once in a while, someone will show up if there's some big controversial thing going on. But usually when it's a controversial thing, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not all that important. You know, we've got a thing going on in Menominee Falls right now with um, changing their, their high school nickname, which is drawing all kinds of attention. Well, you know, why don't we get that kind of attention for the scores? Now, I don't know what Menominee Falls scores are. I'm not, I'm not using them for that particular reason. Uh, but we, we need to get people to go in to these school board meetings and shake the branches on the tree and let the school boards know that you're paying attention and uh, that you need to get this done. I, as an example of this, you know, we had a, a, meeting, a special task force a couple of years, probably four or five years ago on the Common Core Standards, um, and I co-chaired that committee we went around the state, we studied the Common Core Standards, and uh, largely determined uh, that this was coming down to, even though the standards were not good, the support of them and the non-support of them was coming down along party lines. Uh, and when I, I tried to, when we moved forward from the Common Core Standards, let me scratch that a second, but I lost my train of thought. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, there, I got it now. So, 
So when folks were wanting changes to the Common Core standards, well, this comes down to some of the um, local control that we have in our school districts. The DPI does not uh, give required standards to our school districts. They can adopt any old standards that they want. And so when folks would come to me and say, you need to pass a law to get rid of these standards that the state is requiring the school districts to do. I say, well, the state is not requiring school districts to do any particular type of standards. If you don't like the standards your school district is doing, you need to go down to your school district meeting and you need to make it clear to them that we want this changed. Uh, but largely, people don't do that. Uh, now, I know your lives are busy, but what's more important than your kids' education in your life. Uh, and if you don't have kids, there are tremendous tax dollars coming out of your, pa your pocket to pay for programs that are not, as in are not as effective as we expect them to be. And so we need to get people to these school board meetings uh, to let the school boards know these results are unacceptable. My children are not being educated as they should be. My tax dollars are not being spent effectively uh, and if we're not going to get some results there are going to be some changes uh, and make it clear to the school boards that uh, the community is paying attention and for, they're going to be held accountable so I mean that's that's a key thing if we can get people to pay attention and get to those meetings I think that's going to go a long way towards building some consensus on this I think that's great advice and a, a great way to bring our conversation to an end, at least for today. Uh, parents and taxpayers, you need to pay attention to what's going on in the state and at the local level with your schools, how we're doing in the classroom, and you need to speak up. More importantly, you need to speak up and let them know, the, the politicians in Madison, your elected uh, local school board members, the, the administrators at your school, you need to let them know that you want the best schools in the state, you want the best schools in the country, and we're expecting everyone to do better. That's great advice. Uh, state Representative Jeremy Thiensfeld, 20 plus years in the classroom, it's always fascinating to talk with you about education in, in Wisconsin. We thank you so much for joining us. We, we hope to have you back on soon. Uh, once again, thank you everyone for listening. This is the MacGyver News, Newsmakers Podcast. Uh, State Representative Jeremy Thiensfeld, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>